This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are actively learning to be active investors. Actively learning to be active investors. We're learning the, to be active investors? Yeah, because there's passive investors and then there's active investors. Oh. And we're active investors. I was going to say that's news to me. I yeah. thought we were like on the side of do nothing. Well, we are. So we're very lethargic active investors. <laughs> we're lazy active investors. We are. <laughs> so we mostly do nothing in our act, active uh, activityness. And um, and then when we when we do something though we do it a lot, yeah, we get that's aggressive. True. So we're also passive aggressive investors. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're active aggressive investors. I so don't know. passive. There's all these like industry terms that people are just sort of supposed to know, and none of us know that. None of us being like the non financial people, none of us know them. What's this passive thing? Does that just mean like buying a fund? Or an yeah. index, and then you, yeah, you just that's sort what that of, means. It means you, you're not you're not choosing you're not choosing to be involved other than just picking the fund, and then let somebody else go do it. That's okay. called passive investing, and that's what's highly recommended. Last week we were talking about that about how important it is to be a passive investor if you're not going to be a knowledgeable investor because active investing requires knowledge, or you're going to be very afraid of what you're doing. All so right. I guess I can accept that. I do feel yeah. like even make, I guess by buying the U.S. index, if you know, or the index of whatever country you live in, uh, I guess that's pretty passive. All right. Well, I want to I want to talk about um, this little book that I, I was sent by a, one of our one of our students. I do, too. But before yeah. that, oh, before that, can I give you feedback on our episode last week? Only if it's good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you whatever it is. So last week we talked about um, a, a question that a friend of mine had, which was that she has a baby and she has a little bit of extra money and she wanted to put the money into some sort of investment for her baby so that when 20, 25, 30 years, he's got hopefully a good decent nest egg out of this money that she invested for him uh, for the long term, for the very long term. And so I didn't really know what to say. I had some ideas. So we talked about it last week. Go listen to that episode uh, if you haven't already. So our basic advice to boil it down was buy the U.S. stock market index. She's American. So buy the U.S. stock market index because, and essentially the S&P, right, Dad? The SPY? Right, SPY. And um, because then you don't have to think about it. You don't have to choose any companies. But you could buy it now when it's at one of the highest levels it's been in recorded stock market history. Or you could wait 
for the crash or, or a recession or, you know, some kind of correction in this market and then buy in uh, at a lower price, right? But you were saying that for somebody who's like not versed in this stuff, you would say just do it now, maybe put in a little bit more when the market crashes and just like don't even think about it and, you know... You basically, I think you said something like she'll end if she has two thousand dollars, she'll end up maybe with like four thousand dollars <laughs> if she buys yeah. at a really high level. <laughs> yeah, ballpark. So, she texted me and she said, "I don't want to end up with four thousand dollars." <laughs> That's <laughs> basically BS. She used other words. So I'm going to quote. She said. I am totally going to wait for the recession and I wanted to tell your dad I can handle the emotions. Three <laughs> exclamation points. I'm a tough cookie. Three That's exclamation so cool. points. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm sure she is. So I talked to her about it on the phone. Uh, she texted me that and then I talked to her and she was like, I can do this. I'm going to wait. It's going to be fine. I'm so excited. I looked up Berkshire Hathaway. I didn't know what it was. It cost $300,000 for a share. She was like, what the heck are you guys talking about? <laughs> I said, there's two classes of stock. Uh, one is many hundreds of thousands and the other one is 200 bucks right now. Right. So one, it was cool because she hundredth of the of the big expensive one. Yes, but it was cool because yep. she's like into it and she's excited and she feels totally comfortable with waiting. And you know, the main thing, the problem with waiting, as we all know, is that you're so tempted to spend the money on something else. So she actually really smartly already thought about that natural emotion and said, I'm gonna put the money actually already in a brokerage, like I'm going to make a brokerage account and I'm going to put so the money nice. in that account and make sure that it's just sitting there and I basically just forget about it so that I can't accidentally spend it on a vacation or on something else. And then, and then it'll be there for when the market crashes. So I thought that was really smart. That is really good. And I, I think that she's, because she's a tough cookie, <laughs> she'll be able to control her emotions for her son and do the right thing, which is, I think, hard to do, actually. But, I mean, it's, it's hard to do emotionally is to sit out a rising market. It really is hard to do that. And which I is said why to her, you might have to wait four <laughs> to six years. And she said, I know. She was like, I'm ready. Cool. I, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Because, and here's the thing that I think people don't understand about that, is that... <laughs> If you wait a long time, let's say you wait five years and you don't do anything, your money is invested maybe in a money market fund, right? Like yeah, it's maybe a, a government bond fund that gets 2.5% right now or something yeah, like that. Yeah, she should be able to find something she can put it in at least for a short Yeah, time. it's going to make something. And then um, – and but essentially don't invest it in anything that's – don't be active about it. But then once the market does what the market inevitably does, and that's fluctuate down, goes down between 35 and 50%, when that happens, wonderful businesses are on sale. And if even if all you did was just buy the index at that point in time, you would still have an opportunity to make a very high rate of return. Like the last time, 2009, until just recently, the compounded annual rate of return in the market has, has been 13% plus dividends. So Since it's 2009. Pushing, so meaning like probably <clears throat> starting from the bottom. Of right. The last. From the bottom. Um, till now, 
has produced a really good return. Like I think with dividends, it's ballpark about 15%, mm -hmm. which means you've doubled your money in five years and it's been 10 years. So you've doubled it twice. So in that case, her 2000 would become 4,000 and then 8,000, right? If she just did the index at the next time around. Um, and that's happened multiple, multiple times. It's not just a one-off thing. It happened repeatedly in the 70s and then again in 87 and then again in 99 to 2001 and then again in 2007. It's, like, it, it's a cycle that the business cycle goes through. And it, alternately, if you picked 10 companies that were reasonably good companies using the strategies that we've essentially been taught by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you pick those 10 companies and buy those since uh, 2009. I, we actually did this experiment in a, in a class in Singapore that we did in 2009. And the result to, to date, not including dividends, is 32% a year compounded. The result of what? Of that 10 stock portfolio that the oh, Singapore from students picked 2009. in June of 2009. And um, that result in a $100,000, this is bigger than her investment pile, but $100,000 invested then um, would have become $1.25 million without dividends. And there were companies producing dividends. So it would have been more than that um, compared to the S&P 500, which that 100,000 became 300,000. So there's a, a vast difference in, in, in the willingness to wait. It really is huge what it can do for you. Yeah. I, yes, a hundred percent. I also really struggle with like back testing stuff because it's always you. That wasn't a back test. I know. Well, it is now because <laughs> wait a second. No, it is it now. Was, it's no, not no, no, a back listen, test. listen, what? so yes, okay. at the time you were looking forward, it was not a back test in June of right. 2009 when you were sitting there in that class. Right. But, but what you're saying is looking at it now in 2019, looking back, if you had stayed with those investments until now, you would have gotten whatever you just said, something very high. Right. But the problem that I have with that is that so many people are out of the market already because they're waiting for this crash and have been for several years and have missed this big run up that we've had in the last few years um, because we were all trying to time the market essentially. And so it's like this terrible catch 22 where either you semi try to time the market and like get out and sit around and wait for years or you don't and you stay in and you know that at some point those investment gains, which are unrealized, are going to drop and the numbers you just quoted are going to end up not being realized. Well, that's a fair, that's a fair criticism, actually. Um, and quite insightful. I'm impressed. That was quite good. I, um, well, thank you. I don't really think it's insightful. I think it's like, this is real life that everybody who is thinking about investing practice today is dealing with that question. So. Well, I think that actually, if you were to, if you were to say real life on this set of stocks, um, then real life would have taken you out of BlackBerry, for example, which is one of the stocks on the list. <clears throat> there's no way you're going to sit in that when the story changed as dramatically as it did uh, for that company, right? BlackBerry being the premier uh, business, what do you call it? Uh, the PDA or something, the, right? It was a phone. It was a phone, like, an, yeah, what do you call it? A smartphone. It was a smartphone. Yeah, smartphone. It is, they still make them. It is a smartphone. 
Right. But the iPhone wiped them out. Yes. And it it was an obvious wipeout. And a lot of people got out of that stock. It wouldn't have been a, a real stretch to say, oh, okay, we made a mistake on this one. Or we didn't make a mistake, but the story changed dramatically with the advent of the iPhone. And so that one w- was the biggest drawdown on the whole portfolio. Mm-hmm. That was huge drawdown. Mm-hmm. If you got rid of just that one and then dumped stocks, dumped them all, let's say in 2015, you still would have done fantastic. Yeah, totally. Still would have done well. I think that's the takeaway. You still would have done really think, well. Yeah, that's the takeaway. And you would be sitting here in 2019 just wanting to like shoot yourself for having sold all those right. stocks in 2015. Well, it's the same problem. <laughs> you want to shoot yourself whenever you get out of stuff and it just keeps going up. I mean, that's... But you don't have a crystal ball. And 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 so what Buffett and Munger do um, with their billions is just realize there's no way they can time it at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but the keywords here are anymore. Warren used to time it like a maniac. Hmm. He was a absolute timer in this only in this sense i'm going to get a lot of flack for saying he's a timer yeah so let me just say he's only timing in the sense that when the stock price goes back up to its intrinsic value he sold it and moved to other things and that's all i would be advocating for here as opposed to saying oh the market's super high, i'm going to get out of everything yeah, it's just what what's the value of that stock hmm. and then if if the indications are that the market's really peaking um, be be a little more conservative about it, you know, be judicious and maybe exit near the intrinsic value. But if you're not at intrinsic value, don't worry about it. You just buy more when the thing goes down. That's that's probably the right way to do that. I wouldn't call that timing. Okay, let's not call it timing because that's a I call it I agree. That's valuing. a term. That's value. Okay, that's we'll valuation, valuing. right? But today, Warren and Charlie are basically in a position with hundreds of billions of dollars that doesn't allow them to do that anymore. And so they're making a moral positive out of a necessity. And that is they can't unload Coca-Cola. Because if and they did, it would in. just crash the stock. Oh, crash the whole stock <laughs> Excuse me. massively. And they wouldn't be able to get back into it later. And then in addition to all that, you have the tax problem of selling companies, they're they're taxed when they sell them. Um, whereas many of the people who invest, like we do, are in Roth IRAs, IRAs, they're in four hundred one ks that are self directed, and they're not paying a tax penalty for getting out of something. Mm. And that's a huge advantage to avoid the taxation issues, mm. right? So, well, bottom line is, when we're little, we're going to be more aggressive. We're going to get out of stuff, and we're going to move into other stuff. We got to. If only we had some velocity. words of wisdom from Mr. Buffett himself. Ah, So, yeah, I was given this book. (laughs) So a really cool uh, book called My Warren Buffett Bible. And it's, I think it's out of print. It was printed four years ago. Um, And it was an an edited book. Essentially what it is, is Warren Buffett quotes, 284 quotes from the world's most successful investor. And it was edited. And I just want to give a shout out to this guy, Robert Block, whose father... Uh, Henry Block started H&R Block, the accounting firm that does taxation. Uh And this guy has just said he's appreciated Warren so much all these years. Um, And he wanted to thank him by just putting out his, what he thought was his best insights. So all it is, is just quotes? Yeah, it's just quotes. And by the way, on the back cover, Ben Stein blurbs the book. (laughs) 
which I thought was great. Was he said, a shiny, Stein. brilliant star of advice and insights from a genuinely great man, Warren E. Buffett. You cannot afford not to buy this book. Ben, ben Stein. Who's Ben Stein? I like Didn't that. Didn't he have a TV show like ben Stein 20 years ago? Is, <clears throat> ben Stein is the guy on Ferris Bueller. Oh, he's the teacher the, in Ferris Bueller. The teacher in Ferris Bueller going, <clears throat> anyone? <clears throat> That's right. Anyone? And then he had this like TV show that was a game show <laughs> where he basically played that guy again. Exactly. And he's actually an economist and he's quite smart. Oh, <laughs> and okay. And he gets on talk shows all I the time. I was like, why like, do like we care what some actor thinks about Warren Buffett except yay him? Um, yeah, Ben's Ben's really quite quite entertaining, and <laughs> and he's also a best selling author. And then um, Ken Chenault, if I'm saying that right, also pronounced Ken Chenault. I don't know which one it is. Okay. It's got that C H E N A U L T, and I never figured out, and I've never heard anybody actually say well, it. Well, the Who's French the, uh, would be Chenault. Okay, so Chenault, chairman and CEO of American Express. And he says, this collection will give you a sense of the incredible judgment, disarming sense of humor, and common sense perspectives behind one of the world's greatest investors. So I'm recommending this book to you guys. Go, go find it. It's, gonna, it's not going to do block any good because it's all it's done being printed. Well, that's but not true because I just ones. looked it up when you showed it to me and they have it on Kindle on Amazon. So oh, there uh, you go. it is possible you to get it. at least in Kindle. Yeah, and he starts off he starts off with a really cool quote. It says, Someone's sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. I like that one. And that's actually from Warren Buffett. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And that's kind of cool. That's kind of what we're trying to do, is we're we're trying to plant trees. Right? For sure. Um, for ourselves, for our, our own investing is planting these little seeds hmm. that we hope will grow into these huge trees. That will provide shade for our family for generations. That's that's the idea here. Yeah. Is generational wealth. I love that. That starts with us. So I think that's a great, great place to start this book. Exactly. And I love actually, you know, I've heard that quote a bunch, but for some reason, you know, it's funny how things sort of hit you differently at different times. You hear things that you didn't hear before. And what I just heard was that he's the planting the tree thing. He's talking about gardening. He's talking about enjoying gardening in addition to the future growth of whatever it is you're actually planting. But then it's also the process of the planting itself, which is, of course, what I'm massively obsessed That's with. That's so right on. I, honestly, you've really, you've really given me something there, Danielle, because I never really thought in terms of the practice of investing until you brought that out as a really important thing for you. And then I started to realize, man, that is so on the money, like the sheer joy of the practice. And you can see that when you look at Charlie and Warren, and I, these guys are in my mind right now because we were out in Omaha, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at these guys, they're way up there, you know, late, late life. And they really like what they're doing. I mean, they love the practice of they investing. Do. Exactly. It just exactly. shines out of them. You know, they're, they'll sit there all day and talk about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I do think they're like a little tired. I think they're, yeah. somebody sent me a great comment on Instagram that said like, I read the letter and it seemed like there wasn't the same kind of joy in it this year. And I kind of had the same impression. I agreed. 
But I didn't feel that when we were in Omaha. I felt like they were like excited to be there. <laughs> Munger was talking so much more than he's talked in other years. He was all over it. Everybody was talking about how much he was answering questions when he normally says nothing. And I think they're just, yeah, they're kind of like the stuff they enjoy they're doing and the stuff they don't, they are just not doing. Like they can do whatever they want in their lives. They're billionaires. If anybody can do whatever they want, it's them. And they're spending their time doing exactly what they've been doing for years. And maybe that includes a little less focus on the shareholder letter, (laughs) (laughs) a little less editing pain, which I fully understand. And a little bit more, uh, doing random fun deals, like giving 10 billion for the Anadarko deal. So yeah, I think they're just having fun with it. And it's so nice to see. I I think if there was any, any kind of a uh, a, a more subdued tone to this year's meeting. It, I think it's less about how old they are and more about how tough it is right now to do this kind of investing at the level they're doing it at. That's I mean, a they, good point. they really do have to deal with all of these shareholders at Berkshire Hathaway who have many of them all of their money in Berkshire Hathaway. And the responsibility of that is huge. And I, I think they really feel it right now when it's. The combination of the size of the company, uh, meaning that in, in order to buy a, a, an investment and to put money into an investment that would have any significant impact on the overall return of the whole company, it has to be humongous. Mm-hmm. The stuff they used to buy, mm-hmm. w- which there's a lot of which we can go out and purchase as small investors, those things now, if the, if, the, if the investment doubled in a year, it wouldn't even be a rounding error on Berkshire's annual report. So that's a really, that really narrows down the world to a small number of deals. And it's really hard right now to get any of those deals. It's going to get easier, yeah. but it's yeah. not easy now. <clears throat> so, Well, to hmm. that end, here's a quote that I found hmm. in the book. To swim a fast hundred meters... It's better to swim with the tide than to work on your stroke. Which is what we're talking about <clears throat> right yeah. now. Because that, <clears throat> that, that right now the tide is, let's say, which way is the tide going here? The tide is going out. <laughs> if anybody can and tell us which the tide, way the tide's going, we would love to know. The tide is in and has been in for a long time. And all the boats are floating as high up on the dock as they probably will ever get that's so you think the tide is continuing to come little no i think it's in (laughs) you know how like the tide comes all the way in and then it's there for a while yeah there's a little moment of yeah there's stasis and then it then it you start to notice it goes back out so if you're on a beach like i don't know dad i don't know if i think the tide might still be coming in and i tell you i don't i don't know maybe Maybe. Or maybe maybe stasis stays for a while. Maybe but isn't isn't that the whole gonna... point is that it's very difficult to know what direction the tide is going tomorrow exactly. Right. And therefore, we don't try to figure it out uh, per se. And so what I think he means is that you can't, you can't really do it market-wide, but you can sure as heck do it on individual companies. You can get a good sense of where their tide is going. Oh, okay. And, I was going to say, tell me more about that. So individual companies, you're saying what? Rather than like 
I'm trying to figure out what the working on your stroke part of it is. Like rather than well, working on your stroke is to find the hard. It's, it's another metaphor for uh, the, if this makes it easier, it's like thinking about um, jumping over high bars on a track, right? Right. It's like, don't choose the hard option. Choose right. the easy option. Right. And so what makes this thing working on your stroke means to try to, to get better and better at figuring out um, exactly what this company is worth and, yeah, you know, yeah, knowing yeah. the whole thing about the whole, this is what everybody does on wall street, right? They're hired yes. out of business schools to do that kind of very difficult, you know, working on their stroke, um, on every company in the market to know and have a strong opinion on the value of every company in the market. That's the job of analysts, right? And they split it up yes. into certain yes. sections of the market. So Buffett is just saying, well, yes. that's really hard. You know, <laughs> it'd be better just to go with go with a company that is already the tides already all the way out on this thing. <laughs> Does that make sense? And that's yeah, that's clearly turning around. Yeah, I I mean I do find it pretty amazing how much people know about companies like analysts, other investors, it kind of blows my mind sometimes. Like people know the ins and outs of these companies. And it does make me think like, am I not doing a good enough job at this? Like, am I not learning enough about exactly what their margins are like? And I don't even know what else, like how they, <laughs> how they plan to do things in five years with like this tiny little choice that they made. And, and I don't know those things. And so maybe I should. I, I, I think know. you have to understand the company, but I think you, you don't have to know the, you know, you don't have to know everything about it that an analyst knows about it because you start to get lost in, in the analysis. You get paralyzed, right? So now, you know, what is it called? Paralysis by analysis, where you know so much <laughs> about everything that you're lost, uh, yeah. to use another metaphor, you're lost in the forest. You know, you, you've lost track of it for the trees. You can't track yeah. the forest. Yeah. And one of the real insights with, uh, with Buffett and Munger is that idea that if you have a company that has an identifiable business franchise that is really strong, that protects its built-in protection against competition, if it's got something like that, then there's a lot of trees you don't have to know anything about. You've, you've got a great forest there. That's true. Okay. That's true. And the second piece that mm -hmm. is really important is that you've got a team of people who are running this thing who are talented at it. And that's a real, that's, that's, I think, where I would prefer you to spend your time than in the, the deep analysis of, uh, you know, EBITDA or something. <clears throat> well, okay. So I, I've got another quote from the book that I think actually applies okay. to this and it, it, it actually sounds a bit like it's contradicting what we're saying, but I think we'll, we'll see. Here's the quote. When I buy a stock, I think of it in terms of buying a whole company, just as if I were buying the store down the street. If I were buying the store, I'd want to know all about it. Okay, but now listen to how he describes what knowing all right. about it means. Continue the quote. I mean, look at what Walt Disney was worth on the stock market in the first half of 1966. The price per share was $53, and this didn't look especially cheap. 
But on that basis, you could buy the whole company for $80 million when Snow White, Swiss Family Robinson, and some other cartoons, which had been written off the books, were worth that much. And then you had Disneyland and Walt Disney, a genius, as a partner. There you go. So I find that really interesting because he says, if I were buying the store, I'd want to know all about it, right? Which is what we were just saying. You got to know all about it. And what does that, like, what's the level of, like, all about it? And it feels very intimidating. But then he describes it as basically understand what you're buying. Understand that this company had these incredible assets in, these are movies, right? Snow White, Swiss Family Robinson. They were movies already in 66. Yeah, or um, a combination of movies and uh, and cartoons. Like TV cartoons? Right. Okay. Um, and that they were worth $80 million just alone and didn't even include Disneyland. And then not to mention the guy who runs the whole thing and was the genius behind everything as a partner. So that's his version of knowing everything about the store. What, what does the store have and who's running it? Yeah. So if you're, if you're looking at Disneyland and you wouldn't have a clue what Snow White's worth, then that one's too hard. And it's got to go in the too hard box. <laughs> but if you were to go buy, um, go to look at buying a, let's say a furniture store in your town, you know, maybe figuring out what the furniture was worth, that, that essentially the inventory of the company, right? The assets of the company, figuring out what that stuff is worth might not be that hard. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. you, you've got to match your, the level of difficulty of the company with what your sort of skill set is what you know something about, and then figure out the value of the business from there and, and look at the combination of things that he's saying. He's saying essentially um, there is, he didn't talk about it here, but there's a huge moat with Disney. They have this gigantic brand moat um, in the hearts and minds of, of the entire United States, right? I mean, any family that doesn't take their child mm -hmm. to Disneyland is like, you know, abusive. You've got to be... <laughs> <laughs> got to go to Disneyland. So, and yes, folks, my dad did yes, take I me to Disney did. World. Yes, I did. <laughs> it was the best. <laughs> it really was. It was great to walk around there with your little kids on your hand. You know, it's so sweet. I was so excited. Yep, was so sweet. So excited. So, um, yeah, you got to know the store. That's what you got to know, you guys. And some stores are easier to know than other stores. And Disneyland, that's that's not that easy of a store, but it's pretty easy for Buffett. Um, I've got friends of mine who are investing in Fiat Chrysler right now. And Fiat mm -hmm. Chrysler is now talking about making a, a merger with Renault in, uh, in France. Mm -hmm. And my friends are basically saying, look, I can buy this whole company right now for about $22 billion. And it has Jeep which is worth $25 billion all by itself. And then it also has Ram, all the Ram trucks. That's worth another big chunk, plus Maserati, another big chunk. Um, and then, and, and on that basis, they're saying, okay, so I'm all in. I'm, I'm coming into this company. But for me, I don't have a good sense of it. I don't, there's, there's missing elements. I'm not sure I really understand the car business or that to the degree I do understand it, it scares me. And particularly mm -hmm. making a combination with a French car company with the way the unions work in France is like, wow, what, do I want to be in this business um, with the potential of all the conflict that's there? 
right? And also they're saying we need to do this deal with Renault in France because, you know, we have to be a big company in this world of, of loser, you know, winner takes all and losers are gone. And what does that say about where this is going to be in 10 years? It says scary things to me. So I'm looking. I think no one knows where car companies I are know. going to be in 10 and years. And so I'm looking out 10 years and going, well, it's great that Jeep is worth $25 billion, but I have been involved in companies where the management sells Jeep for $25 billion and buys Renault, right? I don't get the $25 billion. Those guys just take it and keep trying to build this huge thing, and ultimately they end up with a mm. pile of debt and they fail. And then it's like, oh, mm. man, what was I thinking? And what, mm. what you should be thinking in that point is like you didn't understand the business. You just thought it was a deal you could do, and that the fact that it's twenty-five billion meant that was yours, and it isn't. They, they, companies like that can chew up any amount of of equity, and that's what I've learned in, over over time. If you're a company with a lot of debt and they have a lot of debt, then be very careful because they may add more. I just, I'm glad that you're bringing that out because I've been obviously following that whole deal as well and it just i i mean exact same thoughts as you exactly it's just complicated it could be a boondoggle yes the stock is super cheap according to valuation metrics mm -hmm. but do we know what's going to happen even in five years no i don't no and and walt disney the, the fact that they're trying to get involved with renault which I don't know that much about Renault, but it's not the best car I've ever seen. <laughs> um, it cracks me up. And that, and that just kind of, I was like, that company? Really? Like, maybe, I don't know. And here's the catch. The, it didn't impress the story me. is and, true. And, and not that I have to be impressed, you know, but like maybe it is a great deal. And I think the guy who runs Fiat Chrysler, by the way, I mean, Sergio Marchionne passed away and was replaced by Mike Manley, who used to run Jeep and essentially took Jeep from being a failing car brand to now doing extremely well. And um, I also know that his invest his shareholder letter is filled with candor and honesty and clarity about what he wants to do with that company. So he is getting high marks on all of the management metrics that I look at. I know. I'm really. Um, it's really. It's tearing at me because. Yeah. It really does have the potential to be a, a huge return. And I'm impressed, obviously, that Manesh Pabrai is deep in it and staying with it, even though he's up about 800% on the investment uh, to date because of the gigantic success of the spinoff of, uh, of Ferrari. Um, mm. That Did you get that from his filings? I, I think I got it from a friend of mine. Who got it from his filing? So okay. this is secondhand. I can't tell so you for don't, sure. So we don't we don't know if that's actually. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, but it, let's let's just stipulate that it might be true, and if it is, um, it's pretty impressive that he's hanging in there. And he's been publicly saying, Monash has been publicly saying that he thinks <clears throat> right now that you're buying right now at a super or a Fiat at a super cheap price, and um, that if they can stay on their business plan, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> it'll be worth a, a lot, lot more down the road by 2022. And he's right. If they if they produce the cash flow that they're expecting to, they will. But if they team up with Renault, who knows what will happen? 
And with that little announcement, I'm not going to be surprised if if Monash isn't just like saying, "Okay, I'm taking mine off the table." You know, I take my winnings off the I table. I also don't. I don't know if it'll go through. To be honest, I mean, right. it's as you said, it's quite complicated. These these sort of nationally involved car companies. Um, so so yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. So the, let me jump so on I another think, quote here. Actually, we let, let's do another one on the next time because there's a really good one coming up on this. Um, and um, and I'll tell you what it is, and then we'll jump into it next week. What do you say? Okay. Okay. Here yeah. it is. A great investment opportunity occurs when a marvelous business encounters a one-time huge but solvable problem. Oh, oh yeah. We call that an event, <laughs> and we will yeah, talk about yes, that a lot next time. <laughs> All right. All right. Until then. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. Bye. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.